0: I'm Siri Lindley, two-time world champion, author, speaker, animal activist, survivor, and thriver. I have found a way to overcome every challenge and to take the impossible and make it possible. On my podcast, we're going to talk real life. We're going to get vulnerable. We're going to go first. You're not alone in your fears, your doubts, or your worries. The most successful people in the world have them. Stick with me on this journey. I will help you harness your power, claim your magic, and create the life that you dream of. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bedhead Chronicles. I am beyond excited to introduce you to my next guest, Shannon Huffman Polson. At 19 years old, she was the youngest female to ever climb Denali. She went on to be the Army's, one of the Army's first Female attack Apache helicopter. I hope I'm getting this right. Female attack helicopter pilots. Can you imagine? She is a keynote speaker, an amazing keynote speaker, by the way, one of the best, an author, and the founder of the Grit Institute. And Shannon, I have been wanting to meet you and have you on my podcast four years. I don't know why it's taken this long, but thank you, Shannon, for being here today.
1: It's so good to be with you. And I have also been looking forward to this connection forever. And you've had so much going on in that time as well. So I, I look forward to many, many continued connections.
0: Well, me too. So Shannon, what I wanna know, because you are just the epitome of grit, resilience, courage, um, radness, what <laughs> made you, you like how, what what gave you the drive at 19 years old to do something like climbing Denali.
1: First of all, it takes one to know one, so I'm, I I appreciate that very much coming from you. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Alaska, and that was uh, I think a fortunate thing. One of those things that you don't get to choose when you're when you're born. But my dad had been stationed there right out of law school on the way to Vietnam. He thought, and instead of sending him to Vietnam, they left him in Alaska. So I had the chance to grow up there, and I think Alaska is a pretty unique place. It's um I mean for anybody who's been there, it's it's a place where as, as the bumper sticker used to say, it's where men are men and where women win the Iditarod, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> which has happened several times, you know, and it's the same race at the same time. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's a special place. And it's a place where I think you learn very quickly as part of just the necessity of growing up there, even in the city. And I was in the city, really, I was outside of Anchorage, but you learn that, um, that you've got to pull your own weight, that you can do anything that you need to do and that you sort of need Need to do what has to be done. And no matter who it is that you are, because it ultimately comes down in the middle of the winter on a long drive, it can come down to survival. And so I think there's some element of that without being overly dramatic, that is, um, is very much a part of of growing up in that kind of a place. And so, yeah, I came home from from college one summer and it was after my sophomore year of college and went to a Rotary Club meeting with my mom at the time. And she, uh, there was a a climb that was mentioned, the 60th anniversary climb for the Anchorage Rotary Club. And you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're 19 years old. And so I had been training for an army camp at that point which was lots of running with a heavy rucksack and I was like, yeah, I, I want to do that. I've always wanted to do that. And again, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but it was one of the hardest things. I it still is the hardest physical thing I've ever done in my life.
0: And um, uh, I signed up and, and was fortunate enough to go. Okay, that's incredible. And I think that maybe that's the thing is that you don't know what you don't know. So there's that innocence, that naivete that gets you to take that first step. In that, right. what were some of the biggest, things that you learned and and you obviously that didn't get you to a point where like I'm never doing something like that again I mean you go on to do bigger and and scarier and harder things but what is it that you got from that climb that continued to form who you were as a human being
1: yeah I'm actually you know nobody has ever quite approached the 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 conversation that way, and I'm glad that you do because it's um my husband and I have actually talked about this. Uh, having that kind of experience around that age, I think is really, uh, it's a very formative thing, and um. And, you know, I had been an athlete growing up. I had been on the swim team. I had been a runner and a skier and um, done a few triathlons. But, Siri, I'm not even going to talk about that with you. <laughs>
0: yeah, but, <laughs> but of but course yeah. you've done a triathlon. I mean, that's like this on the, on oh, the scale no, 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 of no, no, things no. you do.
1: No, it's not. It's it's not. But, um, but you know, like the, the, the idea of doing something physical was something I was very comfortable with. And I'd grown up, you know, camping and doing that kind of thing. But but Denali was a whole nother another thing. It's it's obviously it's the highest mountain in North America. It's, you know, from base to summit, one of the tallest in the world. Um, and we also had a real challenge. First of all, we are a team of amateurs, right? It was a Rotary Clubs climb. So there we had two guides and four climbers. And each of the other climbers over the course of that climb dropped out for one reason or another. The first um, gentleman was, was uh, quite a bit older and he really just sort of freaked out on the on the lower glacier and decided to go back so the the second guide is really the hero because he had to shuttle everybody down and come back up and then shuttle people down Um, and then the second person started to have problems with his health um, kind of this this um, acute mountain sickness is what they call it around 14,000 feet and so he shuttled back down and then there were two of us left with the head guide. Uh, we started to do the climb up to 17,000. So you usually acclimatize for a few days at 14,000 feet. Climb up the head wall, which we've already done once for acclimatization purposes, but you climb up the head wall and you go up to 17,000 and that's your, your high camp from which you'll sum it up to 20,320. And this last guy, a really very nice gentleman, and, and he had prepared, you know, he had done a lot of kind of high altitude trekking, but he for whatever reason was having a lot of trouble and so just even on the head wall itself which is something where you you use jumars and you know you, you clip into the ropes and you're going up and we had to go so slowly that it was utterly excruciating and we got to the top of the head wall we had another thousand feet to go and John our guide uh, took everything out of his pack put it between John's and my pack so that we could move a little bit more quickly up to 17,000. And at 17,000, then we had been going so slowly instead of like a seven hour day, it was like a 12 hour day. And I actually went hypothermic at 17,000 then. So then we had this whole other thing. So it was quite an ordeal. And we had two summit attempts without drawing it out too much. The first one, we got up to 20,000 feet, not 20,320 and had to turn around because of a storm. Um, And then we had one pack of dried strawberries left. And I remember the guide saying, he said, you know, it's up to you. Like there's, there's no reason we would do this. Do you, do you want to, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah, I mean, of course (laughs) I'm 17,000 feet. I'm not going to turn around now. And so we made it, we made it just barely. And, but you know, really the lesson in all of that, I mean, there's so many lessons in all of this, Um, but one of the experiences that stays with me on that was that After we came down from that second and successful summit attempt, there was the storm continued, this huge storm that had come up and kind of surrounded the mountain, which is why many people don't summit is the weather up there. And we had a climber come and stay with us in our tent from Poland, because his partner, partner, climbing partner, had gone up on his own, but had not come back. And so the assumption was he wasn't going to make it back. And so Jacek and both of these people became now friends. and We're actually about to go visit Krzysztof um, in Poland, hopefully in the next few months. But Yatsik uh, was in our tent with my guide, and they were talking about how people die in mountaineering, and you lose people when you do this. And this had been his best friend. They've been traveling around the world for the last year together. And then the weather cleared, we couldn't go because the slopes were loaded, so we had to wait. And John said, look, I can't go up with you to look for him because I have a client. And um, and then a helicopter flew over and they saw Kristoff and he was alive. And Kristoff ended up losing both of his legs, I think right above the knees, uh, because he'd been up there for three days by himself, right? It gives me the chills actually just remembering this and um and christoph is this guy i again i can't wait to meet him with my family now because i i haven't seen him for for many many years but um he just always had this smile on his face even in the hospital with his legs you know t- had turned completely black and uh, and he'd been a champion ballroom dancer and a climber and this incredible incredible man it still is an incredible man yeah. and just approached this incredible challenge and difficulty and with with a smile constantly. And uh, and I'll just, I'll never forget that. I think that was a beautiful thing. So yes, one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was the connection to the people on that, um, that was both expected and unexpected that really turned out to be what was the most uh, impactful and and important piece of that climb for me.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine there's so many things in this, you know, it's a shared experience, something that is you know it it's life or death kind of and you've got yeah. just a few people around you but you wanted to keep going see i totally get that because it's like i've committed to this i've come this far like there's no way that i'm going back so you right. do it and and you get home now some people would be like okay you know i got home i did it i'm safe i'm never putting myself in that kind of danger ever again because like i must have gotten lucky is right. the story that people will tell. Oh, so, interesting, so, yeah. You know what I mean? It, or And sometimes it's the same thing. Somebody achieves their ultimate goal and they're like, oh my God, I did it. Okay, I must have, that's my quota. I better like just stay small now. So right. what yeah. is it that, cause that was hard, that was scary. Like you were faced with, you know, maybe there's a a, a guy that's died at the top. Right. When you finish, was there this, oh my God, I'm not doing that ever again, but then it came back later that you wanted to do something else? Or did you right away think, I'm on to the next thing. I want to become an Apache helicopter pilot. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I think that
1: that, and again, this goes back to this idea of these formative experiences that are intense and that you're away from your family. You're, right. you're on your own. I mean, you're not on your own, but you're on your own kind of for the first time in yeah. a, in a real sense. I I think that that kind of an experience for me helped me, helped give me the confidence that I needed to be able to go forward. And, and from there, I was like, I want to do hard things. Like I, I know I, and I knew from before I knew I could do hard things, but like, that was a really hard thing. And so then to say, Hey, I, I, and not by myself. And I mean, this was all by the grace of God and a great guide and all of those things. Right. But But I knew I could get through and push myself harder than I ever thought I could mentally and physically. And I had found ways to, I'd found practices that had worked to get me through when things were really difficult. And and so I I think that gave me the confidence to be able to take on new challenges in an extremely meaningful way, because it was something I wouldn't have guessed I could have done. And, And so when you push yourself through to that place and you push that hard, then then it's it's about (laughs) I don't know if you've you've come across Kara Lawson but I really want to interview her we should both interview her for our podcast the Duke women's basketball coach and she's talking about doing hard better and I'm like yes it's about doing hard better and you get good you get better at doing hard things by doing hard things I talk about this all the time with clients with kids with with people of all ages as I know you do too but you do hard things and you get better at doing hard things
0: yes boom that's so true but also (laughs) Don't you think there's kind of like this responsibility then? It's like, man, well, if I could do that, like I can't just sit here and not do anything hard because like I know, like I've proven to myself that I can. So I kind of feel responsible to myself that I keep taking on more things like this. I want to go back because you said you had certain things and I think this is going to be so helpful for everyone listening that got you through the tough moments. Like what were some of those things and how did you overcome in those moments where you're really struggling
1: so this this is something that's that's interesting uh because one of the guys that was on the climb and i um i'm not in touch with him anymore and i i doubt he'll come across this but he was a really negative guy (laughs) and and he was really grouchy and and i and it was it was it was it was it was hard, right? It was hard because being around negativity and I can no longer, I, I just can't have it around me anymore. Yeah. And now I'm old enough that I can make that choice. But when you're 19 to 50, you don't get to make that choice, right? Nope. So so he was just so negative. And I remember that I purposefully. and and probably also I was 19, right? 19 year olds are like this. I remember he wrote in our group journal, like "This, this girl is so annoying. She keeps saying everything is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I did because you know what? You had to like push, like demand positivity because if not, we none of us would have made it. None of us would have made it past fourteen thousand feet. And so, in that, in the face of negativity, and I have found this in, gosh, in the nonprofit realm, in the corporate realm, in the military realm, it's it's almost faking, but it is forcing that positive attitude and to to the extreme. I mean, to the point where it probably is really annoying because it's either that and succeed. Or it's, it's just fall off on, you know, fall out on the wayside. And so that was the thing that I I remember very specifically having to do was to be overtly excessively positive, because that was the way we were going to make it. And, uh, and otherwise we weren't.
0: Oh my God, we're we're like soul sisters. Let me just tell you. (laughs) I know we are (laughs) experienced. Like this, you just exactly how you put that, and it's bringing me back. I'm sorry, I don't mean to put this on me, but I remember when I first got diagnosed, and um, I got set up with some guy that was meant to be like my mindset person, and and I was being overly positive, even though I wasn't necessarily feeling it. I had to demand positivity because I felt like that's the only way I'm going to make it through this. And I remember him saying to me, he said, positivity is not going to get you through this. So you need to stop faking that everything is going to be okay. And you need to accept reality. And it was in that moment, I literally, my mom was with me and we walked out and I said, you are not the person for me. He was trying to say that positive thinking doesn't do anything. And I'm like, my whole life, that's what's gotten me through. So I love this. I, hey, buddy, look, I know. I can tell you how it is going to get me through. That's ridiculous. I'm so glad you fired him. Yeah, totally. And and (laughs) so, I mean, but you're right. I think it was annoying him. Cause he's yeah. here to tell me, you know, you've got like a 5% chance. Like we got to just get you to deal with the day to day and manage the process. And I'm like, no way, this is going to be my most beautiful triumph. Don't. Yes. And, and he was like annoyed. I think like you were saying Yeah. by my positivity when obviously there was no reason for me to be positive, but so you're my soul sister. I feel it. I know it that's amazing so the positivity okay what else what were some other I mean, and and you say and I think everybody you know as a 19 year old yeah you can't choose who you want to hang out with and sure, if there's sure. negative people like suck it up get over it but you can learn what you don't want to be mm-hmm. but don't you think to a certain extent every single person can tune out the negativity if they intentionally do so It's like, that is not going to take that person where they want to go. So I want nothing to do with that. If I have to spend time with this person in one ear out the other, but be the eagle, stand strong, keep positive. Like, What are your tactics on that and advice for someone that is younger, that is surrounded by, I mean, I hear all the time. I live with people, they're all so negative and I just find myself dropping into that. And I know this is kind of off subject, but like how no, do you no. deal with that?
1: I So this is great, because I want to hear also how you do. But I think one of the things is is being very careful about your environment. And and all of us can do that to, to some degree or another, right? You can decide how much time you're going to spend there. Um, I, I think if you can't get out of the immediate environment and the immediate conversation, being that annoying person that's like, hey, what about this? Like, what? why not? Why can't we do this? And just constantly push that and j- just know whoever that person is. I mean, hopefully it's not a person you're, you're connected to for life. Um, uh, but if it is even so, like help them right by saying, "Hey, you know, we don't, we don't have to stop here. Let's look at this a different way and and force the positivity. Like both for yourself, because I think it's sometimes sometimes we do get pulled down into that. But also, it will help the other person. And if there is a larger thing happening, and I can think about this in in again, like I, I just finished a, a six year project, and I know you are actively involved in nonprofit work as well. So which is another reason we're a soul sister. But I spent six years uh, working uh, to build the Team to, to raise the money to build a library in our rural community in Washington. And wow, you know, you would think, who does not love libraries? Who does not love like everything about this kind of a thing? Who could not, who could possibly not support this? Oh my gosh like it's <laughs> and my old boss at, at Microsoft told me once he's like you know you there, there's a never ending punishment for good deeds right so there's always someone who either feels threatened or thinks something else should have happened or is like oh there's no way we could possibly do this we're too small we can't and you just have to say you, you kind of have to just move on from that that person and say that person is not going to be part of this effort because we are going to do this thing and and if you ever doubt that you could do this thing then you've lost. You've lost the gap, the battle. You have to believe it. You have to to name it and define it and have the vision and then the belief and then move forward into it. And for those po- people that are negative, you know, try in the conversation say, "Hey, we've got to." You can kind of inform them. You can kind of educate them. You could bring that positivity, bring that energy, because nothing is in, nothing can be accomplished without enthusiasm. I I firmly believe that.
0: Oh my God! I, I, amen. And in that, did you kind of use those people that were saying, no, this is impossible. No, we can't do this. It's using that as fuel. Is is that something that helped make you want it even more? And how do you do that? Like, that's a conscious decision to use it as fuel or to have it you know, knock you down.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, you either have to ignore it, which is one option. Um, But that's very hard to do without it kind of pulling you a little bit, right? Or you have to, (laughs) and I don't know why I have this in me, but there's just this kind of this thing like, watch me. You know, like I had somebody say in the middle, like early on in the process, and I'm writing about this right now in in some new work that I'm doing, but, you know, there's this kind of this, what has been called a messy middle or a dip, right? There's this place where you can't see any any of the work that you've done. There's no guarantee of success. No, once you can see it's going to be successful, people jump on board, right? But that is like at the 80% mark and that first like 60 to, you know, 70 to 75%, there's just people pulling at it because it shouldn't be done or it can't be done. And, and, uh, and you just have to say as, as people are like, oh, well, this will never work. You know, we're too small. Just like, I just, and in my mind, and I don't say this aloud, but I can say it now because we're done. Um, I'll just be like, watch me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm with you on that. So let's talk grit. Like what is your definition of grit? Because yeah. I like you, I believe it's, I mean, it's everything. It's, it's,
1: it's everything, it is everything. And so let's talk about the everything piece because I think um, there's so much to unpack around it that is both good and bad, right? And kind of the perceptions around that. I have defined grit as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. You definitely have that and know it very, very well. And what I think is really, really important to talk about, I'm just going to throw this out there and we can come back around to it, is as I wrote The Grit Factor and and did the interviews for years of, of vanguards in their fields, leaders in the vanguards of their fields, what broke out was that grit is not this like... It is very helpful as a discrete con- uh, concept, right? This discrete thing that you pull out for mile 23 of the marathon. That's a super helpful piece of it. But that is only a very small piece of it. And grit is really part of the content of our character. And what came out of this grit factor work is that there's this grit triad, this commit, learn and launch. And that's part of, you know, owning our past, going deep in our engagement in the present and then looking towards the future with that ownership and that grounding in the past with that deep engagement in the present and then looking towards the future with audacity, with authenticity and with adaptability. So it's a much more holistic concept than I think most people give it credit for.
0: Okay, wow. Like you (laughs) just put that so beautifully. So let's start, like it's accepting your past. And and I know you love the power of story. And yes. I, my new book that's coming out talks a lot about story, but yeah. let's talk about that. It's owning your past, but then what? Like, yeah. like what story do you put around it? So can you kind of take us through the triad? And I know everybody here, if you haven't read The Grit Factor, go buy it. It's the most incredible book. And then look into um the work that you do with the grit institute because this is powerful work you guys if you could just take us a little bit through the triad I think that would be so helpful
1: yeah, and I love that you are focusing on story two. And we have to talk about this even more because really the base of the triad, and this is where I will say over the last few years, especially we return to again and again and again, because when things get hard, when the horizon is uncertain, right? When things are, are turbulent to use the aviation analogies, that base of the triad that commit phase is about owning your story and connecting to core purpose. And I could have written the entire book. In fact, an early draft basically had two thirds of the book on story. And the editors were like, okay, that's one chapter. You got to shrink. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh man, it's like, it is, it is everything is going back. And it's not just accepting your past. To own your past is to say, and I give you multiple examples and ways to go about this very tactically is to go back and say, Hey, all of us are given raw material in our lives, right? Some of it we've asked for, some of what we've earned for, plenty of it we wouldn't have chosen though, right? We wouldn't have asked for, we didn't want, but we have, despite the fact that we have all of this raw material, some asked for, some not asked for, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to shape that raw material so that we move in the direction that we're meant to go, where we're meant to best contribute in the world, right? And as any writer knows, and you know this, I know this, when you write a book, you can only really write a very small part of all of the things that you're thinking, all of the research, all of the stories, you have to choose what that narrative arc is. And for each of our own stories, we both, have to and have the opportunity to choose what is gonna be in that narrative arc. So how are we going to look at things and how are we going to use those things in our story for either positive or negative reasons. And and it can be a positive event that has a negative effect, right? So I always ask people to go back through their journey lines, and we call it a journey line or a lifeline, look at every event in that journey line or that lifeline. This is one of the many parts of the training. And then there's multiple levels of analysis that we do for each of those. But ultimately, what it comes down to is you own your story. You don't, it's not your fault that certain things have happened necessarily, and you may not have asked for them or wanted them, you may have earned other things and and been fortunate in other areas, but you do have to take all of that, decide what and how you're going to use it and then move in the direction where you're most meant to contribute in the world. And that is so
0: incredibly exciting and powerful. Yes, and empowering. It's like all in your hands. I mean, you get to go first in deciding these things, what anything that happens means to you, what you're capable of, what's possible, like all I love this. Yeah, and that's only part one, right? Like that's part
1: one. And, And just like you, as you know, like if you don't do that work, then the world will do it for you and it will give you the narrative of who you are or the people around you will give you that narrative. And even if you love them and they love you, that's not your narrative. Your narrative is the one that you decide on. And it is really doing that deep internal work to say, Hey, where am I meant to show up? And I really think of it as this contribution. I I get crazy with all of this stuff going on. I'm like, how do you make a million dollars? I'm like, how about, how do you contribute in the world? How do you give your best self to this world? Because that's that's where, where the where the meaning happens. That's where the magic happens. And that starts with owning your story. You're
0: amazing. Yes, so yes, know. and yes. So let's talk purpose. Like, I mean, yeah. I get this question all the time and I know how yes. I found my purpose. How did you find your purpose? But also what would you tell the listeners how they can find theirs? You know, if there's someone I have no idea what my purpose is. This is so important. And again, I could write, I could write volumes on this because it's so
1: important. And actually the chapter in the Grit Factor on Purpose, I've now blown out because the, the, it's such a big, it's so big, right? It's so big. And Complex in a good way. It's nuanced, I guess I would say. So that means it shouldn't be intimidating. It's exciting. And, and it's an yes. exciting place to explore. Um, so I really purpose is 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 critical in all of our lives. And it is, it can feel unattainable or out of touch or or something that, that we we just don't have a sense of. And you know, the exercise that I use and I, I think about this time very early on, I was as you know, I had the opportunity to be one of the first women to fly the Apache, and I remember giving this opportunity to go and do the training in the Apache. And then I had my first assignment. My first assignment was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was, you know, so tip of the spear, the Army's 18th Airborne Corps. I was the only woman out of 120 male combat pilots, piece of cake, right? And I was there, but I was ready to fly. I was ready to lead. I was ready to be an aviation leader. And instead of being assigned to the platoon where I thought I needed to be. I was assigned as the assistant to the assistant operations officer in the back of the operations shop. And I was typing up not the operations orders themselves, which is kind of the game plan for any kind of a mission, but the appendices to those operations orders, usually starting around six o'clock at night. And I went to the captain that I worked for and I said, Sir, listen, I'm going to keep doing the best work I can at what I've been given, but um, I wonder when that platoon's going to open up. And he looked at me and he said, Lieutenant. The army doesn't owe you anything. And I realized, wow, I've done this work, but the chance the chance to perform might, might not be available. So I kept doing that work that I'd been given. And finally, I went to go talk to the major that we both worked for. And I said, sir, I'm going to keep doing the best job at this work that I've been given. I'm really glad that you're happy with my performance, but I think I can do more. And he looked at me and he was a little surprised and then he gave me one additional duty after the other and I made sure I hit every single one out of the park and finally I took that first flight platoon, but it was a year it was a year in that shop feeling dejected and frustrated and like I was probably in this position where it wasn't really fair and. And and when you're in that kind of a position and all of us will have those experiences, whether it's an injury as an athlete or whether it's it's working in a corporate environment where you don't have control like I didn't have control over that operation shop, you have to be able to connect to something deeper. Then specifics of the challenge. And so what I like to suggest in that case is you use something called the five whys technique and I pulled this from it's a you know it's a manufacturing technique Toyota used it to to drill down to the root cause of deficiencies, but I like to use that idea as peeling back the onion so what the key is, is to ask yourself why, why are you there, why are you there doing what you're doing. And, you know, my first answer was I'm, I'm here to fly the Apache helicopter to be an aviation leader. Well, that's that's fine. So why? Because I was trained to do so. Why? I'd asked for. I'd earned that opportunity. OK, why? I wanted to serve my country. That's pretty good. Right. But force yourself down to at least the fifth level. Why? Why? Because I wanted to serve. And the key is on your purpose to get down to a level that is agnostic of the job and agnostic of the organization, So it can't be related to the fact that I'm in the battalion operation shop. It can't be related to Apaches. It can't really even be related to the army. It's got to be agnostic. And that concept of service was at the heart of who I am, who I was, how I was raised. And so if I could connect to this idea of service, I'm here to serve. Then, and you connect yourself to that. You tether yourself to that purpose. You can negotiate any kind of turbulence that comes your way because you've got to keep giving your best, even when you're frustrated, even when you're dejected, right? You have to continue to perform and to be exceptional. And being tethered to that core purpose is one of the ways that that you will be successful in that endeavor.
0: Okay, brilliant. Everybody rewind. Okay, rewind, however, the last two minutes so you can listen to that again, take notes amazing so in that i mean let's the army is one of the most male dominated you know places in the world like sure that positivity they that had climbing denali and yes. all of that how like did were you thinking oh well i've i've got my fifth why and i know why i'm doing this like it probably not in the moment. Right. Are you aware of that? You you see that now in hindsight, but in yes. those moments, for people that are in a male dominated organization that yes. know, that believe that they have what it takes to be, you know, operating at the top, yes, how do you not give in to the constant, you know, being held back?
1: Yeah, that, that's certainly. a really important question. It's so important. And you know, that is where the entire grit factor triad, the whole grit triad comes into play. The place that I would, I mean, certainly I think doing that commit work is part of it, right? Doing the commit work and and this is all something that, and I'm really glad you brought this up because it's not like I had this figured out, right? This is a lot of this is in retrospect going back totally. and saying, gosh, I wish I'd known that or I wish I'd yes. done this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hoping that others can take that earlier on in their careers. So exactly. if you can do that. Exactly. That's why we're both of us are here. Right. And so you, so you go back and you, if you can do that deep internal work early on, that's a huge bonus. Mm -hmm. The next step on the deep engagement in the present is another really good place to start because the first step of that is building your team. And that is so important. It's, it's, it's to have that, that support team, when you go into an environment, which is, Maybe not hostile. Maybe it's simply not sympathetic, but maybe it is hostile. Maybe it's quietly hostile. That's even worse, right? It's sort of better when it's overt. Um, But when you go into a place where you are running into challenges and obstacles, having your team and your support is really, really important. And it's hard to do in the midst of that challenge, although it can be done. But if you can start to build that team in advance, that's a really critical thing. And that is going to involve somebody who is, whether it's a, a spouse or a partner or an intimate to, you know somebody that is very, very, very close to you. That's going to be kind of in that inside circle. You may have one or two colleagues that you want to ensure that you can lean on or trust or, or kind of bounce ideas off of. And then we think about. And now it's it's National Mentorship Month, I believe, in January. But uh, mentors and sponsors as well, and and those could be you know trickier to kind of negotiate and define. But but thinking about building that team when you're in the midst of challenges. And especially in an environment like that, you want to have your team that you can kind of reach out to. You can go back and listen to series podcasts and you can go back and read our books. And, you, and you know, some of those are, are your team. Those are Those are kind of some of your virtual team. But then you want that real world team, too, that can be there to support you and give you both encouragement, but also potentially both tactical and strategic ideas to be able to move forward.
0: Amazing. And with the most important person on that team, you and you, you know, being your own champion and never giving up on yourself and all of that. So tell me, Shannon, you get that first flight, you know, what is that like? And yeah, just share your, your first experience and what that led to. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the
1: Apache is an amazing. It's an amazing machine. I, we always say in the Army that you get to play with the best toys that you'll ever play with in your life, right? And once you leave, that's it. I mean, you're not going to see those again. Uh, but it was it was incredible. It was. Um, I mean, I, I always I like to tell the story of my my first flight, which would have been down at Fort Rucker, where I did my training before I was was assigned to Fort Bragg. And, uh, and walking out on that flight line, it was in Dothan, Alabama, <laughs> we used to call it UCLA, the ugly corner of lower Alabama. You walk out onto that flight line, the sun's not quite up, it's cold, it's January, I never knew Alabama could be cold. I grew up in Alaska, but Alabama can actually be cold. And had that flight suit jacket zipped up against the cold, and you see this, this massive helicopter, and it's just crouching there, right? It's it's 58 feet long, it's, uh, it's 12 feet high, it's 18 feet across. On the nose are three different sight systems at sea and day and night in adverse conditions on its wings are 2.75 inch folding aerial rockets and anti-tank hellfire missiles. There are only two seats in the Apache. They're seated in tandem like a fighter jet. And you walk out and you, you see the most technologically advanced helicopter in the world. And my first impression, honestly, you know, I walked out on that flight line and I had chills going up and down my spine and it wasn't the temperature. It was I was an English major in college, right? I'm walking out towards this incredible machine. I studied three semesters of Shakespeare and one of Milton, right? And uh, and and I had to realize on that flight line, I had to realize, you know, I'm better than any of the doubts that I have. I'm, I'm better than any of the doubts that I've heard expressed around me about why do women need to fly these things anyway? And you have to own it, right? You've got to own it in that moment and that's a decision. And I remember walking out, opening up that front cockpit, Dropping down into that seat, attaching that five point harness, putting on that, that giant helmet that has these sensors on either side that make everything slave to whichever way it is that you're looking in the helicopter, and beginning that run up procedure. And there's just this tremendous power as you feel those rotor blades start to, 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 to move over the top of the helicopter and you taxi out towards takeoff. And this is my favorite part. But I always like to ask audiences this, and I'll always ask them to raise their hands and say, which way do you take off in the Apache helicopter? Do you know? This straight up? Ah, see, that is the, that is that's that, that that's that's a very normal and <laughs> that's, a, that's a good guess. <laughs> I know it's wrong, right? No, it's it's right. right. Oh, it's no right? But in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you turn the nose to face the wind. And when you use it the right way, the resistance will help you to rise. And it is an aerodynamic principle that is true for any aircraft. And it is also true for our lives. There's incredible power in that aircraft and there is incredible power in understanding that metaphor which is to say, we have to turn towards with courage whatever that resistance is. And there will always be resistance and the the higher you reach and the higher you climb and the more that you do the greater that resistance is going to be. But when you turn into it, it stabilizes the aircraft, right? And it helps you to climb. And I think that is something that I hope that everybody will remember.
0: Okay, everyone, rewind that bit also, please listen to that again. Okay, so let's talk about that resistance. I mean, let's, let's talk about one of those, which is fear, which yeah, we're all right. faced with. Some yes. people, you know, and, and I know for me, there are times in my life where fear held me back, but yeah. so, so how do you manage fear? How do you define fear?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I'm writing about that right now. And I have been thinking about how there's, there's so many different types of fear, right? There's, 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 there's fear of, of like your, your physical well-being. And there's just, you know, fear if you're standing next to a high cliff or something like that. There's fear of failure. Right. There's also the fear of success, which is a really interesting thing and I think can be one of the trickiest and most insidious for a lot of us. Uh, and um, and I think when you're looking down the barrel of fear, which is a completely normal emotion that all of us have felt over the last several years, right? I mean, there's been this visceral sense of fear, of a physical fear for ourselves and for the people that we love and, and for the world. Um, a fear of of stability, which is still very much a problem, right? A fear of knowing what's going to happen, a fear of change, um, and a fear of, of what the ramifications of that are. It is turning towards that fear. It's saying, I'm going to turn towards that. I'm not going to to let that hit me on the side. And you know what, what yes. happens if, if a wave hits a boat on the side, right? Same thing in an aircraft, same thing with us. If we turn away from something, the damage is greater. And yes. so turning towards that and forcing yourself to, to define it, right? To define it. what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? And why am I afraid of it? I mean, even write that down. I have done that actually exact exercise. I'm afraid of this because of this, yes. this is why. And as you write it down and as you give it, give it some definitions it loses its power pretty quickly actually, yes. right? Because it's this huge emotion inside of you. But when you do that work to, to do that definition, all of a sudden you can start to look at it and say, well, well wait a minute, wait wait a minute. What, what is, and, and I've actually had, I think this is a technique that works with, you know, running into challenges that may be interpersonal at work where someone's like, well, you always do this thing or, or at home, right? Or with your kids and you, you always do this thing. You're like, okay, I really don't wanna do that. So can you give me a specific example? And oftentimes there isn't one, right? Because it's just the sense of like, gosh, I, I, I'm not happy with this aspect of something or I'm fearful of this in general. But when you when you have to, to really delineate what the challenge is, you, you start to see that oftentimes, not always, oftentimes it may not be as big a challenge as, as you thought it was. And if it is, whether it is or not, again, turning towards it and taking a step in its direction, right? Taking physical motion in the direction right. that you're scared to move will help you to overcome that bias of of, of, reta- of recoiling from it. And I think that's so important is the momentum, the momentum, momentum concept
0: of it. So powerful. Rewind that everybody, rewind <laughs> that. I, I mean, that's so true and it's so powerful. And yeah. it's, it's like, I mean, in my mind, I'm just thinking about how sometimes, you know, there's a problem or an obstacle and you want to go around it or under it or over it. And it's like, you know what? The no most other. effective way, the way this is going to be temporary pain, not long-term pain, is to go right through it. That's Similar right. kind of, you know, philosophy there. Shannon, you're amazing, by the way. Um, <laughs> you are one of the great... Um, leaders and, and you coach leaders and you, you know, what in your opinion makes a phenomenal leader? And when I say leader, I want to say like leader of an organization, leader of a team, but also leader of your own life. Yeah. Yeah. What are the key components of, of becoming that? Yeah, that's an important question. Um, I have one very quick answer, but
1: I'm not going to let myself jump to that because it's uh, it's a huge piece of it. But I want to start a little bit before. So all will three things. The first thing is self-awareness. I mean, self-awareness is critical. And it's doing that deep internal work that quite frankly, most of us have never been coached to do. And none, none of us give ourselves time to do, especially the higher and higher we get, the more responsibility we get We rarely give ourselves that time, but doing that introspective, thoughtful work on yourself and being self-aware is the first and most important qualification of any leader, Um, but it can't be, it, it doesn't stand alone. I think the second thing is being the visionary, right? You have to be. You have to have a sense of what is possible. And that goes back to positivity. It goes back to optimism. I mean, certainly it's tempered with all, I hope that we understand that it's tempered with a tactical understanding of how things will be approached and what the strategy is going to be, but you've gotta be able to set and communicate a vision. And maybe that's what it's about is a self-awareness and then communication of a vision. And yeah. there's so many pieces of that that we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. So I don't want that to sound simplistic but it's a critical component for sure. And then the third and final and utterly and completely non-negotiable part of this is that you love your people and that you take care of your people. Your people includes you. It includes your team that supports you. It includes the teams that you support. And it includes the people that work either with you or for you. And at the end of the day, a leader takes care of their people full stop. And that is one of those things that, as we've talked about, all of the various leadership crises that are happening right now, I think right now we we see failures in self-awareness. A lot of them are because of fear, right? A lot of the fear that has come from this environment. We're seeing failures in communication and failures in the ability to, to have a vision in the midst of uncertainty. So that's another big piece that we need to work on right now. The last one shouldn't be hard. The last one, when people are leaving in droves, and, and, and this is a complicated issue for sure, because this is this is historic. Yeah. But at the end of the day, leaders take care of people. And I remember when I was promoted to first lieutenant, it's sort of like getting your advanced driver's permit looking back now, right? But the battalion commander I worked for, who I still think of as one of the best leaders that I've ever known, pinned on the silver bars of the first lieutenant. And he said words that I will never, ever forget. And he said, the only good use of any increased power that you ever have is the increased responsibility to take care of your people. Because he understood and he conveyed, and I believed then and I believe today that leadership is a sacred trust. It is a sacred trust to hold people's lives in any capacity. But as a leader, that's what you sign up to do. And so that means going to your people and asking them questions and listening and working with them to find solutions and knowing what the challenges are. It should not be a surprise to people that people are leaving. That means they haven't been in touch with their people. And and again, it's not as simple as that, but but it is in some regards as simple as that. And so those three things, I think, are the most critical pieces that I would pull out as, as necessary for leadership.
0: Wow. You're amazing rewind that everybody just keep <laughs> rewinding okay i know we have a little bit of a tight schedule here i want to know what matters most to you now like like your purpose now what matters mm-hmm. most to you well so this is where i think purpose becomes more nuanced
1: um i'm actually going to show you something can i show you something and i'll yes, explain it for please. listening on the podcast uh but um I have a technique that I use at the Grit Institute and that I that I teach, which is called the four quadrants technique. And that is saying that this five, drilling down to the five whys is important, uh, but it also sometimes becomes more nuanced as you get older and you have other things in your life. And so I will bring people through a series of exercises um, through the Paths to Purpose program at the Grit Institute and my last exercise, and you have to go through the whole thing to kind of understand how it works, but is to come up with quadrants and my four quadrants for my purpose are love, learn, create, and serve. And I've got, there's other pieces that you do as part of this to help to, to, to really drive that home. Um, but the other part of it that I'm really working on, and actually I wish I had Siri Lindy as my coach, um, is also for every day saying, am I honoring and working on my body, my mind, my heart, and my spirit? And how is it that I'm honoring and working on each of these things? And that is what I recommend to everybody else as well, because you can't live. I think it's, it's, you know, my word for last year was whole, like W-H-O-L-E, living a whole life. I think that is what we are meant to do. We're here to do. We're not here to just do the one thing. And, uh, And my word this year is relationship, because at the end of the day, everything comes down to that, right? It comes down to heart. It comes down to relationship with the people that we love, who hopefully are those who are family or friends, but also the people that we work with and the people that we are in community with. And and it is building those communities and supporting each other. And so so this year it's relationship, but I would say these four quadrants are what I really look for um, look, look to make sure that I'm honoring in, in all of the work that I'm doing. And I try to make sure that I'm doing that every, I have again, like little bullets for each of these, but I want to love to learn to create and to serve. And I want to do that every day and every week.
0: So inspiring, but it's not just that this is what I want to do. You know, the things that you have to take care of in order to do that. I love that. I love that you have a word that you had a word last year. You have a word this year. This is like, you're my soul sister. As I said, you have a word. Do you have a word this year? So I, I do, and I thought I had come up with, I was grappling between, um, groundedness, which Uh in my opinion is staying, you know, grounded in your purpose, your mission, what has to happen in order to fulfill that. Yes. But underneath that, well, well, how, where does that come from? When am I most grounded? And that's when I'm in flow. So I woke up one morning and just changed my word to flow Um, like that, but there's so many other things that, so I love how you created, you know, pictures around what will lead to that, but like you, you know, my mission, my purpose has different parts to it, but we're not going to talk about me right now. I want (laughs) to say, Shannon, first of all, how can people, people are going to listen to this and they're going to want more of you. So how can they find you? Um, if you could share that, that would be amazing.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. I'm online at shannonpolson.com as well as thegritinstitute.com. Most active probably on LinkedIn and on Instagram also at Shannon H. Polson. So I'd love to see you, interact with you, give a follow, give a, give a shout out. And uh, I look forward to hearing from all your listeners.
0: Well, Shannon, you and I, we have to do something together someday. Yes, um, I'm planning yes. on having a big event at our ranch within the next year or two years. Fabulous. I want you here. You're amazing. You're my soul sister. This has been such a gift, not just to me, but you know, for everyone listening. So thank you. Thank you for being you and the incredible gift that you bring into this world.
1: Siri, right back at you. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to connect with you. I will see you soon. All right. Sounds
0: great. <laughs> Thank you for listening and sharing this precious time with me. Please remember to subscribe and to leave me a review. You can find me on Instagram at Siri Linley, Facebook, Siri Linley, and Twitter at Celt. S-E-L-T-S. You can also reach me via email at info at Have an amazing day and shine on.